You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Good evening, everyone. Um, Do you know whenever a a new iPhone comes out, perhaps, or maybe a new PlayStation, or maybe if you watch Star Wars movies and a new one comes out, there's great anticipation in that release and massive queues for the new version or the next installment. Like many years ago, this was a queue for One Direction tickets, people camping out. And if you look very closely in the back, you'll see Bert Taylor in the background there. But with these different events, there's great excitement and anticipation with the build-up. And finally, it arrives for people. Like this week, we've seen the Perseverance land on Mars after not only its launch in July, but for the years and years of work and the great anticipation and excitement there was to see pictures from Mars. As we enter the Gospels, there's been years and years and years of anticipation, years of preparation for this moment of Jesus coming into the world. From the end of Malachi into the the Gospels, we might flick one page, but 400 years have passed. What has happened in the in-between? Well, God has been silent for all of that time. After the Persians were defeated, Alexander Uh, The the Greeks invaded, and after Alexander the the Greek died, he split his kingdom into four, and the influence of the Greeks is really long-lasting, because, well, the entire New Testament is written in Greek. And he dies, he splits his empire into four, and then there's a Maccabean period of 164 BC, a Jewish revolt seeking to get Israel back to where it was, but they too turn out to be dictators. And then, well, the Romans came in 63 BC, And a guy called Pompey took Jerusalem, and he reportedly walked right into the temple, not just into the temple, but right into the Holy of Holies, the ultimate insult to the Jewish people. That is how the Rome and Jews relationship started. May we explain so much as we read the Gospels. Again, a good study Bible will help you with more of that historical detail, but after 400 years of silence, God speaks by his son, Jesus. See, we aren't to detach the Old and the New Testament. Though 400 years have passed, it's still the one story. And each gospel, even in the opening words in Matthew, Mark, and John, they give us hints that this is still just a continuation of what's gone on before. Matthew, which opens with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Mark begins the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. And John echoes of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning was the word. Each introduces us to Jesus. David reminded us last week, the prophets paved the way to the gospel. Everything that we've been looking at in this series of Bible Fresh in the Old Testament so far has been driving us forward to this point, this moment where the world changes, the moment where we measure dates from the coming of the the Messiah, the the Lamb of God, the Son of David, the Lion of Judah, the Prince of Peace, you get the picture. He is coming into the world, God's own Son, who was there from the beginning, but now takes on human flesh, coming down to us. All the prophets, they point forward to our prophet Jesus. All the priests and all the sacrifices pointed forward to our priest, Jesus. All the kings, the good and the bad and the ugly, all point to our better King Jesus. 
just to remind us of this covenant that we've been working through in the Old Testament. Hopefully on the screen is going to come a table. And way back in Genesis 12, if you remember, God promised to Abraham, or Abraham at that point, and we see its progression right through till today. So there, Abraham has promised a people, a place, and a blessing of God's presence. So we see that fulfilled in the Old Testament, don't we? Initially, it's a family, but that family becomes the nation of Israel. And they're able to enter into that place of the, the promised land. And God's presence as well, the fire and the cloud, then the tabernacle, and eventually the temple. Now, what about now? See, Jesus doesn't come to give a, a, a brand new thing. It's a continuation on. Think of an iPhone software update or a computer update. It changes some of the functions to be more effective uh, and maybe wider range, but your computer, your iPhone will still text and email and do all those things it originally was purposed to do. That's what Jesus does. And now we see the people in the, the visible church as we gather Although we gather in separate churches, we are scattered, but we are all remarkably united in one place in Jesus. And no longer is the presence just in the temple behind the curtain, but it's in us by God's Spirit. What is to come? What are we looking forward to? Well, where the invisible churches gather, those saints of old and in the future, with us in the new heavens and the new earth, dwelling with God, man, God dwelling with man. See, the life of Jesus, it fulfills all the promises of Abraham and points us forward to those ultimate promises of God's presence in the new heavens and the new earth. See, the life of Jesus as recorded for us in the four Gospels, it's not a biography of Jesus. It's really easy maybe to read it like that. Yes, they give us lots of details about Jesus. They recall the teaching of Jesus, what he does, how he lived, who his friends were, but it's not a biography about Jesus. We cannot read it as a biography. So as we consider the Gospels, they quickly, very quickly becomes clear that it's God's redemptive, covenant-fulfilling activity through the person of Jesus. It is that redemptive history that we've been talking about from the very beginning, the unfolding events in Scripture that God uses to redeem his people from sin, fulfilled in Jesus so that people would know and worship him. Now, there's four Gospels. Hopefully you know that. Three of those Gospels are synoptic. That's what it's called, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they describe the life and ministry of Jesus. And John is a little bit different. And if you've read John, you will know that John is a little bit different. So this evening, we want to do a quick fact file, as it were, on each Gospel. And then we'll look at the cross tonight as well. So here we go. Matthew, fact file of Matthew. Well, Matthew was written between 70 and 80 AD. The audience is probably Jewish Christians. And well, as you read Matthew, there's a couple of things that will stand out for us in that. And one of them, I think, is that we are lifelong learners of Jesus. Lifelong learners of Jesus. And we see that really fulfilled in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, that we are to be disciples of all nations. And as we read Matthew, there'll be these indications of people following Jesus or supposed to give up all their possessions to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus, being a, a lifelong disciple. And in Matthew, Jesus fulfills this messianic hope to Israel and to all nations. 
Matthew is just is the first gospel, but it opens us up not just to the Old Testament Jews and the people of Israel, but now a greater people. And we see throughout that Jesus is king and that there is God's kingdom. In Matthew 13, there are seven parables about the kingdom of heaven. We have Jesus as the, the son of David, echoing that eternal, that eternal throne that David was promised, and this is Jesus fulfilling it. Again, he's fulfilling this messianic hope that he is Christ, the anointed one, Lord, Son of God. And we really need to understand and get the Old Testament so we can understand and see the magnificence and glory of Jesus in the new. And Matthew uses a lot of Old Testament quotations, and we need to understand where they're from and the context in which they're from. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, don't just pick random verses out and put them in because it makes suit. They, they understand the context. They use Old Testament quotes and Old Testament echoes, especially in Matthew. You'll remember way back in the book of Exodus, maybe, we did echoes of Exodus in the rest of Scripture. And well, in Matthew, we have one. In Matthew chapter 2, we have the killing of the firstborn, which is very like Moses. And then there's this exile that a... Mary, Joseph, and Jesus have to go. They have to leave Israel and go to Egypt. In Matthew, Jesus is at the center of everything, and he proclaims the kingdom and calls us to live like him. Let's go on to Mark. Mark is the earliest written of the Gospels, written at probably about 50 to 60 AD, and he writes uh, probably through mostly the witness of Peter. And Mark's writing style is all action, nothing stops. It's always keeping going. It's immediately, immediately, immediately. And perhaps the audience is this Roman church at a time of killing and persecution and suffering in Rome. Maybe. We don't know. What are we to look out for whenever we read Mark? Well, I try to pick out one verse in each uh, gospel. Uh, Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Because as we read Mark, as you read Mark, especially in the latter half, so the first half of Mark, chapters 1 to 8, is kind of all about the work of Jesus. The second half is about the last week in Jesus' life uh, and that he is a, a suffering servant. See, in Mark, we see that Jesus is the, the kingly Messiah who comes to rule, but he's also the Messiah who is a suffering servant. Jesus is God's suffering servant. And remarkably in Mark, it is wonderfully put together. At the start of Jesus' ministry, at Jesus' baptism, the heavens open or literally are torn. And God says from heaven, you are my beloved son. At the end of Jesus' ministry, as it were, his death, the curtain in the temples are open. They are torn. And what does the Roman centurion say? Surely this man is the Son of God. Next, we have Luke. Luke, probably about 70 AD. And why does Luke write? Well, we've been looking at Luke uh, quite a bit over the last couple of years, haven't we? And it all goes back to, to the verse 4, that, that we would have certainty in what Luke writes because he uh, researches it so well. But if you had to sum up Luke in one verse, it would be Luke 2.10. That announcement, good news of great joy, for all the people. See, as we look at the book of Luke, 
we will see that Jesus seeks the lost, don't we? We even thought about that today a little bit. There's that great chapter in Luke 15. We see it in Luke that Jesus is really interested in people of low standing, those who are despised and rejected, women, the poor, the scandalous, the tax collectors. And throughout Luke, Luke, sorry, throughout Luke, there's this emphasis of prayer and the Holy Spirit throughout as well. And we need to just keep that in our minds as we do Acts next week, because Luke is volume one, Acts is volume two, and in both there's the prayer and the Holy Spirit. We see God's concern for the lowly, and we see the, the kingly rule of Jesus throughout, that he is the king that's to come, not just to be king of the Jews, but to be king of the world. And that causes joy, because it is the good news of Jesus. Finally, then we have John. John is the, the latest gospel, 1995 AD. And well, John gives the reason why he writes in John 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And John is very different from the first three gospels. And it is really like Exodus in so many ways. But you could split John up into two. Chapters 1 to 11... We can call it the book of signs. Chapters 12 to the end, the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because in John's gospel, there's so much going on. It's so rich and deep. And we really need to understand the Old Testament for it. There are these magnificent I am sayings indicating to us that Jesus is the source of all life. Either Jesus says specifically that he is the life, or in other words, if we follow Jesus, we will avoid death. John 6, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Each one saying that we need to be planted in Jesus to have life. We need to look to Jesus because he is life. We also have seven signs. Seven signs so that people would believe in Jesus. All the way back again in Exodus, you'll remember that the plagues are actually called signs. And John is picking up this language again. But in Exodus, this, the signs are of judgment, aren't they? But the signs in John's gospel, they are of hope. So the first sign in both. So the first sign in Exodus is water to blood. What's the first sign in John? John chapter 2, it is water to wine. Not judgment, but hope, a, a new life. The last sign, the death of the firstborn. The last sign, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So many links to the Old Testament feasts. This Lamb of God that has come into the world. John is so focused in on the Old Testament. He really shows us the glory and how Jesus fulfills it all. But all of these Gospels, they all have a journey to Jerusalem. And all of the Scripture points to these moments that change everything. Jesus' incarnation to be both God and man, but also his mission, his death, his resurrection, to save his people from their sins. So now we're going to just turn to Matthew 27, uh, which James read for us, verses 45 to, to 54. And this evening, I want us to look at the cross in a very, just really simple manner, the significance of it, even as we remember what has gone on before in the Old Testament. 
So Matthew 27, verse 45 and 46, the first thing that we want to look at tonight is the cry of Jesus. The cry of Jesus in verse 46. And we need to hear it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry. You know, whenever you hear maybe a, a shrill or a scream or a cry, and you just know that something is not quite right, well, multiply that by infinity. Jesus' cry is even more powerful than that. It's a cry of someone experiencing the wrath of God poured out on him. Jesus has taken the cup of God's wrath. Let the sound of what Jesus is saying reverberate in our ears again and in our hearts. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is our sin. Our sin doing that to our Savior. Surely we should hate our sin if that's what we hear from our Savior, God's own Son, to hate sin and to love our Savior. Unimaginable suffering because of our sin, the wrath of God on Jesus. Just before Jesus has been with his disciples, he said that he's sorrowful and troubled because he knows this cup of wrath that he'll have to drink. Jesus cries, receiving God's wrath, enduring our condemnation. At the cross, that cry, it is ghastly, yet such a gracious sight. God expresses his full judgment of the sins of his people on Jesus. Jesus endures wrath so that there would be good news of great joy for all the people. All the sacrifices before, the endless blood spilt, point to this sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus. At the cross, we see God's wrath, and it does two things. It should fill us with fear. For if we do not trust him, that's what we can expect to receive. Yet because of that cross, as we were reminded this morning, we can become friends of God. Jesus takes wrath so that we might experience his love. That cry of Jesus. We can hear the anguish, the pain physically. Jesus cries out these words, and these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are from Psalm 22, and that very first verse. And maybe a useful exercise later will be read Psalm 22, although it's the lips of Jesus. Because Psalm 22 captures the physical anguish that Jesus experiences. The Psalm 22 says, I am poured out like water. My bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers have closed in on me, and they pierced my hands and my feet. Jesus' physical anguish was re really real. It was very real. His suffering was intense and incredible. But it's Jesus' spiritual pain that we read in these words the most. Jesus, part of the triune God, feels although he is separated from God. That is what our sin does. On the cross, he suffers the full wrath of God poured out. Yes, the nails in Christ's hand, the crown on his head, all those physical pains are nothing to the spiritual anguish he endures for us. The most intense suffering he experienced was spiritual. The hopelessness of feeling like he's lost his own father's blessing because he has experienced the torment of God's, God's wrath on us. God's wrath's not on Jesus for just a moment. Jesus is on the cross and he's 
covered in darkness, isn't he? For three hours, there's darkness. There's no light. Because this is a dark moment. He experiences the full cup of God's wrath. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Both Matthew and Mark record this cry for us. Luke records the conversation between the two men on the cross, either side of Jesus. Matthew and Mark record a final cry from Jesus on the cross in verse 50. He cried out again. What was that cry? Well, it quite possibly be this in John 19, verse 30. It is finished. For the unbeliever, it might seem like it's over. There's no hope. There's nothing there. But for the believer, it is a a note of triumph that it is done. Jesus begins in Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he ends, it is finished. How does Psalm 22 end? He has done it. Jesus has paid it in full. It is accomplished. It is all finished. All the promises in the Old Testament, all the prophecies are finished because they are fulfilled in Jesus. All the blood spilt, the sacrifices and the priesthood are done because Jesus completes it. He finishes it. God's wrath is fully satisfied because it is finished in Jesus. The debt of our sin, the huge debt. Why do they have to slaughter animal after animal after animal? Why did they spill blood and blood and blood in the Old Testament? Because of sin. Because the blood of Jesus shed for us does it. Before I entered into Union College for ministry, I was a, I, ages ago at university, I signed up for the Anthony Nolan a blood donor for bone marrow. And about after Easter, before I started the college, before I got married, I think it was, I was a, a full match for somebody. And everything was organized for me to go over to London to get the needle in and get the bone marrow out for someone who really needed it. A couple of weeks before, due to go, get a phone call. Sorry, Mr. Bingham, we won't be needing you anymore. See, my blood might have saved someone for a little bit. That would all it would have been. I never got to use it. It mightn't have helped. Jesus' blood works. It's the only thing that can satisfy God's wrath, and he pours it out for us. This cry of excruciating pain and anguish is him experiencing God's wrath, yet he cries with his final breath, it is finished. A cry of triumph over sin and Satan for us. It's the cry of Jesus on the cross. And hear the anguish and the sound of victory in his voice. What else do we see in Matthew 27? Well, the next thing we see that's relevant for us when we're linking this together with the Old Testament is the curtain. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain at the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. What about this curtain? Why is it so significant for Matthew to share this with us? Well, this curtain, 60 foot high, 30 foot wide uh, or so, three and a half inches thick. You know, imagine trying to tear a phone book. It's next to impossible, isn't it? But it really would take something else to tear the curtain. But what Matthew wants us to know, that this curtain is ripped apart from top to bottom. It could not have been a man. 
And Matthew records this incident for us because it gives testimony to the death of Jesus that his death is inclusive of all people. The tearing of the curtain is, was to separate the Holy of Holies from the, the temple and the people, separating God from the people. But here we have it. God saying all the way back that there be one who would bring blessing to all nations. And here he is. Jesus' death opens up the way to God. This 60-foot high curtain split in two. God himself abolished the separation. He's introducing a, a new uh, and living way of life in Jesus through his sacrifice, a final sacrifice on the cross. The place where only the high priest could go to ripped open for all. Jesus' death gives us full access to our God, fresh access. He is our high priest. A sign that the system was no longer needed. The work is done, it is finished. It's only Jesus that we need. The true lamb had been sacrificed and has opened up a way. The curtain opens the way up to our God. Opens up the way for all nations, the Gentile as well as the Jew. The cry, the curtain, and then finally, the centurion. The centurion and his men, they witnessed the death of Jesus. He has witnessed the darkness in the middle of the day. He has witnessed the beatings, the cries. And when Jesus breathes his last, in verse 54, what does he say? Truly this man was the Son of God. The centurion is gaining an insight into Jesus' true identity. The darkness in the middle of the day, the crying, the earthquake, prompts the soldiers to conclude that this is no ordinary crucifixion. Amongst all that they have seen, this was not normal. See, Jesus, the promised Messiah, the Son of God, he is most clearly seen in his death. The Jewish leaders had mocked Jesus with the taunt that he is the Son of God, yet on his death, the Jews who should have seen him as the Son of God didn't, and the pagans, the Roman soldiers, what do they say? How do they identify Jesus that he is the Son of God? How much the centurion and his men fully understand? I don't know, but Matthew's point is clear. It's in verse 54 for they confessed that truly this was the Son of God, they were all filled with awe. They were terrified. Matthew's making the, the link back to Jesus and his transfiguration where the disciples were left in awe. They're bringing them back to the disciples when Jesus comes to the sea and the storm and all the disciples say, this is the Son of God. The centurion is confessing who Christ is even when he's outside the kingdom of Israel. The death of Jesus, this fulfills the Old Testament in its entirety. The death of Jesus opens up a way to us. It takes the wrath that we deserve. Just like the centurion, we need to confess Jesus as the Son of God. He is the Messiah, the one who comes to reign with his kingdom, the not everlasting eternal throne, the one who gives his life as a ransom of many, the one who is good news of great joy for all the people, the one who gives his life because he is the source of life. See, as was the case way back where we started, in Genesis 3.15, a seed was needed, an offspring was needed to defeat the serpent. The people of this world 
we all needed someone else to rescue us. We needed someone to be perfectly obedient, just like uh, Jesus, unlike Adam. We needed this unblemished lamb that was human, just like us, without sin, to be sacrificed for us, his blood shed for us. We needed someone else to rescue us. We have been waiting for that offspring, for that seed, right from the beginning. And it wasn't Seth or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or David or Samson or, or Gideon or anybody. But all the Old Testament, if anything they teach us, only God can rescue us. God alone can save us. And he does it freely and willingly. A conquering offspring. The one who crushes the serpent head is Jesus. He is the one who reigns triumphant over all things. Mm -hmm.